0: So um, But we're glad that you're here this morning. We are continuing in our study first John. And there are there are several themes that run throughout these writings. One of the themes probably the most obvious is is about love. Love for God, knowing God loves us, God's love for us and having love for others. Another common theme throughout John's writings is is that John wanted his readers to know, and I specify that word know, with certainty that they could have eternal life, and also to know that eternal life is only found through Jesus Christ. It wasn't enough for us to hear it. John wanted us to know it. And we've studied in, in recent weeks that John gave some specific ways that we would know if we possessed the things that he wrote about. In 1 John alone, that short book of 1 John has five chapters. The word know appears 39 times. It appears eight times in just the last chapter. So he was obviously trying to get it across that hearing is not enough. Paul wrote that we should be doers of the word and not just hearers. But John is trying to get across that it's not just that we hear the word or that we read the word, it's that we know it. And it's not that we hear about salvation, but that we know that we possess that salvation. And often John, if we've studied the style of his writing, and this is not a writing class this morning, but if you think back, some of the style of John's writing was that he would often repeat the same thing in a different way just to make sure that people knew what he was talking about. It was not an uncommon thing. John wrote in the scriptures that we're about to read that through faith we can overcome the influences of sin. And when I say the influences of sin, I want to include in that something that might be surprising and that's addiction as we sit here this morning and as those that are listening through some other means of media many would say addiction what are you talking about we're, we're all Christians we're all saved that's that's impossible let me tell you this addictions among Christians is on the rise now stay with me and this lesson could take as short as five minutes if somebody decides to grab a rock and hit me in the head with it. But just stay with me, because I am i definitely am headed somewhere. Addictions among Christians is on the rise. I'm not talking about something that, that somebody went out and did, or somebody goes out and they commit a sin, they realize it's wrong and they ask for forgiveness. I'm talking about people who are admitting to an addiction that they cannot control in the church. Just to name a few. Gambling. Not just in real life going to the casino and losing all your money. And yes, more people lose than win. That's why the casino's so big. But online gambling has become a huge addiction. Not just to people in the world, but to people in the church. Pornography. There was a recent study in Today's Woman that said, It was something like, and this will shock you probably, it was like 34% of women have gone online or go online to look at pornography. We usually think of pornography as something that only men do. But pornography is on the rise among women. Online chat rooms. Not every online chat room is bad. There are some online chat rooms that are are Christian-based, and you can discuss the Word of God. But more and more, even in churches, we are seeing relationships and marriages broken up because of a, Online relationship, people in the church, drug abuse, specifically prescription drugs. Because some people think, but the doctor wrote me a prescription, so it's, I'm not really an addict. If it's something that you take and you can't stop taking, it doesn't matter who wrote you the prescription or if you're buying it off the street, you're addicted. Overeating. I threw that one in there because it's the same thing. There's a lot of people out there with eating disorders, the opposite, bulimia, anorexia. Yes, in the church. People that will go out and gorge themselves and eat and eat and eat and then go home and stick their finger down their throat so they can throw up. You go, why would somebody do that? Because they look in the mirror and they see this image and no matter how thin they are, they always think they're fat. There's something in their head. It becomes an addiction alcohol. And the list goes on and on. And you go, well, that's impossible. Well, there are many reasons why this happens. Among them is there are too many churches today that are teaching what I've called before, and I didn't coin the phrase, but are teaching christianity light. They're teaching that Salvation in Christianity is an emotional thing or it's a prosperity thing, and it's not a relationship thing and when you all you have is this shallow religion and something else comes along that you can grab onto, sometimes what you grab onto grabs onto you tighter than what you grabbed onto it and that 's why we see a rising number of addictions within the church, first John five. 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is where John starts talking about what we were talking about just a little bit earlier. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Throughout John's writings, he offered a lot of different ways that we can know with certainty of our salvation. There were primarily three tests of the authenticity of one's faith. One was obedience to the Word of God. Another was love for others. And another was belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for our salvation. He stated all of those in this short passage we just read. And it's not the first time that he's gone over those. I believe that what he's wanting to to make sure that we know is that this is how we know we're saved. When we do these things, then we can know without a, without a doubt and with certainty that we are saved. In the early church, there were, in John's time, there were those that, was te- that were teaching that Jesus was not the Christ, that Jesus was not the Messiah. And in response, John emphasized recognizing Jesus as the Christ. And by recognizing that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah, it was, it was a sign that people were truly born again. You say, well, well, we believe that. But there's a lot of people today that don't really in their heart believe that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, that came to earth, lived as a man, that suffered all the things that a man can suffer, that actually died and was buried and rose from the grave. And I'm, again, I'm not talking about people in the world. I'm talking about people in churches. There are men standing in pulpits this morning that do not teach that as absolute truth. And John made it clear that the way that you know for certainty is that you have belief that Jesus was the Messiah and that without believing that, there is no grounds for your salvation. Because if Jesus didn't come to earth and die, then you have no remission of sins. And if we have no remission of our sins, then we can't be saved. And that's what John emphasized over and over throughout his writing. One of the heretics of John's day was a man named Serenthus. According to an early church father named Irenaeus, John wrote his gospel to correct the heresies that Serenthus and others were teaching. Here's what Serenthus taught. He taught that Jesus was the natural son of Joseph and Mary and that Christ descended on him at his baptism and left him at the time of his death so that it was the human Jesus that rose from the dead. You go, well, that's twisted. There's a whole lot worse in the world today. I mean, as much as that is heresy, it's just... It's it's absurd. And John was he was talking in regard to what these people were teaching and he was trying to emphasize, look, it doesn't matter who comes along and tells you whatever they want to tell you. Jesus was the true Son of God. His death was real. His resurrection was real. He was Jesus the Christ from His birth to His resurrection to the ascension into heaven. He never changed in there. John did not allow for there to be separation between Jesus and Christ. And that's what some of these heretics were teaching. Jesus was the Christ. Christ means anointed one. The Greek translation of the Hebrew word translated as Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the anointed one. When you separate it, you have Jesus the man, and you have the anointed one as being over here. And that's what a lot of people were trying to do at the time. Without that core belief that these two are one, that Jesus was truly the Christ, we cannot be saved. The new birth brings about not just a love for God, but in the writings that we're reading today, it's said for his other children. Those that we call brother. If we really have the Spirit of God in our life, we will love our brothers we will love others and those around us. John pointed out in verse 2 that the way that we show our love to the Father is through obedience to Him, by carrying out His commands. Unfortunately, when people who are not believers think of obedience to the commands of God, they equate them often to rules and regulations, much like the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in John's day. A lot of people, if you, you talk, about, talk about obeying the commandments of God, and they go, oh, you got to be kidding me. You You do all that stuff? Well, see, God's commands are not just a list of things that we check off and say, yep, do that, don't do that, yep, do that, don't do that. That's not God's commands. God's commands are a way of life. The way that we live our life, it's not just some do's and don'ts. It's a lifestyle that we take. People often look at it, and John addressed that. He said that God's commands are not burdensome. And too many times, people, they, they look at Christians and they feel like that we are burdened down because, because we are Christians. No, we are set free because we're Christians. When we are in sin, we are burdened down with sin. When we have received salvation, we have thrown that off and we are free. The new birth, or as we call it more often, being born again, actually changes a person's perspective and it gives the person the strength through the Spirit to obey the commands of God. It's not like we go through life living a Christian saying, well, I have to do this and I have to do that. No, it's, it's, it's exactly the opposite of that. We receive the Spirit of God in us and we love Him so much that we want to follow the commands of God. See, that's where people get it, it, it backwards. It's not something that we have to do. It's something that we want to do when we're truly saved. And John was making this point here saying, this is how you know you're saved. If your if your salvation is a burden, you're probably not really saved. Jesus said in Matthew eleven, twenty eight through thirty, "Come to me, all you who, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And what picturing here is, is if you were plowing the fields, which I've never done, but if you were plowing the fields with two oxen, and you had a yoke that laid across the, the two oxen's neck, it was the load that they carried to pull whatever they were pulling, a plow or whatever they happened to be pulling. And what Jesus was saying is, come unto me. Take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is light. The yoke of sin is the one that burdens you down, but when you take my yoke upon you, it's easy. My burden is light. It's, it, John is reiterating this just the same thing again, that salvation is not burdensome. Keeping God's commands is possible because of our victory in Christ over the world's sinful pattern of life. Believing in the deity of Jesus opens the door for our triumph over sin. But the extent of our triumph depends on our willingness to claim what is ours by faith. We can have victory. How much victory we have is up to us by how much we claim through faith. We talk about addictions. We can have victory over addictions. But it's only through Christ. Amen. The evil of forces of the world cannot prevail against the confidence in the one who overcame the world. Remember, Jesus has already overcome the world. And if we have belief in Him and we have the Spirit in us, then we have the Spirit of us in us that has already overcome the world. When John spoke for the world in verses four and five, he used it to signify any opposition to God and and the plan for redemption. He wasn't talking about the world as a globe. He's talking about the, the influence, the evil influences that are there in the everyday life that we live. John used the world, the word world 24 times in his three letters. 24 times. So what is that influence? It can be an outlook on life as much as the world has. It can be obsessions of a godless and secular society. In other words, when we start becoming like the world... And like people that live in the world that aren't Christians, then we have become worldly. That's a word that, that is thrown around in churches an awful lot. And a lot of people I don't think really understand what it is. What is being worldly? We are, we live in the world. The Bible speaks of, of living in the world, but not being of the world. And that's the difference. What are our influences as we live? And those evil influences that these forces lead a direct assault on the church and its beliefs. John described as he described the world, it stands for everything that opposes Christ and his work on earth. Because Jesus came to overcome the world. Our faith gives us to, gives us access to the victory that Jesus obtained while he was on earth. We don't have to go out and and live an overcoming life on our own. That was never the part of plan of salvation. When we walk out these doors, we are not by ourselves if we have the Spirit of God in us. And because of that, we can battle the, the sinful impulses and we can obey the commands of God because we have that Spirit in us that has overcome the world. First John chapter five verses six through twelve. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which He has given about His Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. This is one of those instances where John writes the exact same thing over and over and over. And he says, if you do this, then you'll do this. But if you don't do this, you won't do this. And he's just saying it to make sure that people knew what he was talking about. And if we don't break it down, sometimes we go... I have no idea what I just read. What did he say? And so I want us to look at this a little bit. It starts off talking about the water and the blood. He wrote that if the Holy Spirit is truth, and if that it dwells in us inwardly, it testifies to the fact that Jesus came by water and blood. There have been many attempts to identify what John was referring to when he wrote about the water and the blood. I am not going to try to stand here today and tell you exactly what that means. I will give you some different views. Some scholars, including Calvin and Luther, have sought to equate the water and the blood with the with two of the ordinances of the church, one being baptism, the other being the Lord's Supper or communion. Another view that dates back to Augustine links this passage with the spear thrust into the side of Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. Um, John wrote, the same writer John that wrote the letters of John, wrote in John 19.34 that when they pierced his side that water and blood came from his side. Another view links Christ's birth to the water and his death to the blood. A view that is probably most widely held, which doesn't mean that it's absolutely right, makes the water and the blood references to Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion. Since his ministry started with his baptism and it ended with his crucifixion. So if we go back to 1 John and we look at what he was writing, that Jesus, he did not come by water only, but by water and blood, there are different views as to what that means. But regardless of the view that you take... The important part is this. It shows that Jesus was really a man. It shows the fleshly side of Jesus Christ. In order, in any of those views, it took human characteristics to have those things happen. So whichever view you decide to, to take, I assure you that it won't change your salvation. This is not a salvation issue. This is an interpretation issue. But the important part that remains the same in all of these views is it shows the humanity of Jesus Christ. And as John was writing, again, he was trying to refute people like the Gnostics that believed that anything that was human was evil so Jesus couldn't have had any humanity. He was also refuting people like uh, the false teachers like uh, Sorrentus that he was writing about also. He went on to argue that if we will accept human testimony as a witness, how much more should we accept a divine witness? Now, probably when he wrote this, he had writings from the Old Testament in mind. In Deuteronomy 19 and 15, it said that three witnesses are required in a court of law. A person could not be convicted on the basis of one person's testimony. So John is writing here, based on the Old Testament law, that it took three people to actually stand and make something a fact. He's saying in his writings here in 1 John that there are three that bear record. There are three that testify. Now, before I move on and we go to this next part, stay with me for a minute. Contrary to what a lot of people think, Moses, David, the prophets, the apostles, Paul, John, and all the other writers of the Bible did not write the King James Version of the Bible. No, they didn't. Even if I didn't know anything about history, I do know this. None of those people spoke English. So they did not write the King James Version of the Bible. The King James Version of the Bible is a translation that some men got together and wrote. Specifically, the authorized King James Version of the Bible was commissioned by King James I, who at the time was king of England and of Ireland. Before that, he was actually known as King James the fourth, and was king over Scotland, if I'm not mistaken. He gathered a group of scholars, all of who were members of the Church of England, and he gathered also as many of the original manuscripts of the scripture as they had access to at the time. This was in order to create a translation of the Bible that could be considered, quote unquote, authorized. By the first half of the 18th century, the authorized version of the King James Bible was effectively unchallenged as the sole English translation for use in most churches. It is a translation. I made that point for this reason. In the King James Version of the Bible, in First John 5 and 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. In the NIV, verse, verse 7 says, For there are three that testify. The words that are found in the King James Version, the way that it is written today, is found as a footnote in many versions of the Bible, including the New International Version. Although Greek manuscripts date all the way back to the early church, the time of when these things were actually written, the wording found in the King James Version, this on the screen here, is not found in Greek manuscripts dating back any earlier than the 1500s. Now before you grab a rock, I'm just telling you, that's a historical fact. This scripture, the way that it is written right there, is not found in any Greek translations before the 1500s. And I'm talking about the 1500s in this era, A.D. Now, if you take verse 8 of the King James Version and the NIV, and I want us to read, this is the King James Version. And there are three that, this is the following verse, there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. The NIV says the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. This is the important part. This is the important part. I don't believe that John wrote this portion of Scripture so that there could be battles over doctrinal issues. I don't think he wrote it so that there could be people in disagreement over whether that verse 7 was written this way or this way. That wasn't the point. The point was, he was trying to get across, and he made this clear, that there had to be three witnesses for something to be proven as fact. And in verse 8, he makes that clear in both versions. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. In the King James Version, it says... There are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. In other words, here is your proof. Your, your man-made courts that we have say that there has to be three witnesses to prove a point. Here's your three witnesses. You can take all the other things that, that people argue about or whether or not this was this. That. That's not the point. We have to look at why he wrote what he wrote. It wasn't a doctrinal thing as much as it was a legal thing. People wanted proof as to why something was true. Here's why it's true. You have three witnesses. And they agree. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. That's why it takes at least three. I had an accident at, not at my work, but at the corner just up from my office. And surprisingly enough, as busy as this intersection is, there were no witnesses at all. So when it was all said and done, they did not fault either driver, even though one of them absolutely for sure ran a red light. Because... They said that there were no other witnesses, and it was this person's word against this person's word. He said, she said is exactly the term they used. And this is why the the Old Testament, they said that there had to be three witnesses to convict somebody. And this is why John made such a big deal out of that there are three that bear record, and these three agree in one. It doesn't matter if the testimony of a man is not available about the Word of God. It doesn't matter if the testimony of a man says something different than the Word of God. The truth is that the Spirit bears record of this. And this is what it is. These three have agreed that these are the facts. The first step of our salvation is believing. If we know now that it's true, because there are those that bear record that it's true then we can start that step towards salvation because we can start with believing. John wrote that we could believe this, that it's true because of the witnesses that testify to it. Not human witnesses, but heavenly witnesses. Verse 10 says that if, if we believe in the Son of God, then we have this testimony in us. It goes on to say... That if, if we don't, then we make God out to be a liar. So he's proven that it's true because there's three witnesses. And he's saying that when we believe it, then we have that testimony in our heart. But if we don't believe it, then we make God out to be a liar because he's one of the witnesses. Who says? It says, we made him out to be a liar because he has not believed, let's talk about man, has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. In other words, we're saying, if I don't believe this right here, then I don't believe anything that God has said. And I'm not talking about the King James translation. I'm talking about the Word of God. Refusing to believe in Christ... Blocks our only source of receiving the Holy Spirit into our life. If we don't believe first, we will never receive the Spirit of God into our life. John says in verse 11 that eternal life is in the Son. And this is the testimony. He talks about why there's testimony, who testifies, and then he says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He set this up so well. When you look how He wrote it. He gave all the reasons and all the reasons and all the reason. And this is like the, aha, gotcha. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is through His Son, Jesus Christ. No one can reject Christ and still be saved. You say, well, that sounds harsh. It is harsh. But it's true. On the other hand, those that welcome him into their heart receive that eternal life. And this, again, is one of the cores of our Christian faith. Christianity is not a philosophy. It is not a religious system or a set of beliefs. It is a relationship with Christ. And that's where too many people and too many churches have gotten away from what it was supposed to be to start with. It's turned into a religious system. It's turned into a set of beliefs. It's turned into a rule book of things you can do and can't do. And they've forgotten completely about having that relationship with Jesus Christ that makes all that stuff unnecessary because we want to do those things. When we have a true relationship with Christ... When we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we are not on our own. It is then that we can overcome the world and all of the evil influences in the world that seek to destroy us. I spoke earlier that there are many churches that are teaching and preaching a Christianity Christianity light or a weak form of Christianity. A real relationship with Christ will cause us to obey his commands because we realize his love for us and then in turn we love him Amen. and throughout the years living for God has turned into something it was never intended to be it was never intended to be burdensome it was never meant to be this this horrible life of dread and fear just waiting for God to smack us on the head. And that's all, a lot of people picture God as this, this big guy up in the sky that just watches every little moment so he can just wait for the right time and just pound you on the head. No. God is a God of love. It doesn't mean He overlooks sin, but He doesn't go around looking just so He can put you out of His existence. Now, let me clarify, I'm not saying that everyone who has or that develops an addiction has never had a relationship with Christ. What I'm saying is this, that if we keep the relationship with Christ to the point of where it should be, it's certainly not as likely to start because every addiction starts with a first time. And if our relationship with God is where it should be, then it's less likely that any of those things will creep into our life. Even Paul spoke of some things that he dealt with. 2 Corinthians 12 and 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Many people have tried to make this in theology have tried to make this thorn in the flesh of Paul's a physical infirmity. I don't believe at all that it was a physical infirmity. If that was the case, that it was a physical thing like a limp or something, why would he be so clear to say that there was a messenger of Satan sent to torment him? I believe this is something that that Paul dealt with daily. I believe there were things in Paul's life that he struggled with to stay victorious over them. You go, Paul? Yeah. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, I'm not saying Paul was a crack addict. That's not what I'm saying. But I feel like there was probably something in Paul's past. Maybe it was thoughts from the past. Maybe it was things from the past that tormented him, even in the life he lived for Christ. And if Paul... Go ahead. That's an excellent point. Excellent point. No matter where we have come from, those things in our past are still in our past. Now, God doesn't remember them against us, but I guarantee you, Satan does. And he will throw them up in your face every opportunity he gets to try to remind you. And I, Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I, I, I'm not trying to make Paul out to be a bad person. I believe that Paul was a godly man but he was a human being and he said that there was something that tormented him all the time. Romans seven eighteen through 20. I love this man. He just, he's just right there. <laughs> that was the next thing I had written down. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. This is Paul writing. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For when I have the desire to do what is good, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. What is Paul saying? He's saying there's still things in me that, that make me want to go do things that I know I shouldn't do. It's still in me. Why? Because I'm a human being. And when I do those things, it's not not me doing it. It's because I have sin in my life. As we said before, if we are full of the Holy Spirit, it's not as likely that we will allow something else to creep in. And I believe that Paul spoke of dying daily as to dying out to the flesh daily because of this very reason. I know what to do is right. Right? Paul was a smart man. And he said, even though I know what to do, there's still something down inside me that kind of draws me to do the things that I really know I shouldn't do. And I believe this ties in with the other scripture of Paul's thorn in the flesh. That sinful nature, it kept popping up. But the key is in verse 20. He said that if I do what I want to do, it is the sin living in me that does it. The key there is the word I. He wasn't saying that he went and did it. He's saying if I do what I want to do, then I'm being controlled by the sin. We don't have to do what I want to do. We can be victorious over what I want to do by having the Spirit of God living in us. And if you take these Scriptures that John wrote, even though it's a very short passage of Scripture, he was trying to get this point across to the people. You have to have the Spirit of God in you. And when you do, you have victory. That's exactly right. Paul wasn't making excuses for sin. Not at all. He wasn't saying that, okay, now, you know, you're going to sin anyway, so go ahead. That's not what he said. In Romans 5 and 20, Paul said that, he said, where sin increased, grace increased even more. So people ask him, so should we go out and sin more so that there'll be more grace? He said, no. That's not what I'm saying. He's saying that if you do sin, that there is grace for that. Paul recognized there was right and wrong. He realized there was sin. He recognized there was grace to cover that sin. But he knew that even though we're saved, that Satan knows what to use to try to break us down and break that relationship that we have with our God. If the devil can get us addicted to something that destroys that relationship, then he wins. An addiction is defined by this. A recurring compulsion by an individual to engage in some specific activity despite harmful consequences to the individual's health, mental state, or social life. Let me read that one more time. A recurring compulsion by an individual to engage in some specific activity despite harmful consequences to the individual's health, mental state, or social life. In other words, it's going out and doing things that even though we know that it's going to hurt us, we keep doing it. And by that definition, you can't tell me that there aren't Christians that have addictions. Many people try other means, such as willpower accountability partners, support groups, human thought or philosophy, rituals or routines, just having disgust for the sin, or shame and guilt. There is, in churches across the nation, and I think this is a tremendous thing. I believe that it's very needed. There are support groups in many, many churches that deals specifically with addictions. Not for people in the world, for people in the church. You go, well, that's, that's ridiculous. The Bible speaks specifically that if a brother is in sin, that we should help to restore him. That's a, that's a Christian thing to do. We can't just say it doesn't exist and pretend that it doesn't exist and try to live our life like none of that's going on. Because it is going on. And through these support groups and accountability partners and all these things, we might even find a certain amount of success in them. There's a lot of 12-step programs that, that do have a certain amount of success. But I will tell you that without the Spirit of God and without faith in Christ and what John was writing about here, you cannot be completely successful and you cannot overcome completely without the Spirit of God in your life. All of those other things can be helpful. I am not talking against those things at all. I have friends that are in, in counseling and, and go to accountability groups and those type things. And you know what? I think it's great because they need it. But here's the thing that remains. Without a change of the heart, you really aren't changing anything. Paul said because those things that are in me as a human being, they still pop up, and they make me want to do some of those things. You change your heart, God will change your soul. That's right. If we are believing in and relying on anything other than Christ, and we think that it will give us victory over sin, we are fooling ourselves. I believe that. Paul understood even as Christians, we could slip and sometimes fall. But he wasn't the type of person that thought it was okay to overlook sin. But he was the type of person who understood the working of grace and the working of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3 and 6. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills... But the Spirit gives life. Romans 8 8 and 9 through 11. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. Speaking to the church here. If the Spirit of God lives in you, you're not controlled by the sinful nature. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus, raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Paul knew where power and life Came from. And like Paul, John certainly understood the importance of knowing and having a relationship with Christ because it's only through that, only through having that relationship that the Spirit of God dwells in us, and it's only when the Spirit of God dwells in us that we can live an overcoming and victorious life. John himself, the writer of the passages we're reading today, John himself heard Jesus say, These words in John 14 and 6, he wrote them down. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Where do you think John got his ideas that there was only one way to salvation? He heard Jesus say it. He was there when Jesus said that. He wrote it down in his little notebook. And later when he wrote his epistle of John... There it was. Jesus said, there's no other way to come to the Father except through me. So what does it mean through Christ? Through the plan of salvation that was Jesus' death, burial, and His resurrection. It's only through the life of Christ that the, the fact that He was born, the fact that He lived a life, the fact that He was crucified, He was buried, and He arose from the dead. When we live through that, and when we live with that belief, it is then and only then that we can have salvation. And some would say, okay, I believe. What do I do now? now is the point where you establish that true relationship with God. God has promised us the Spirit to live in us. But it's up to us, as Brother Wiley said, to cultivate that relationship. Not just a profession of faith. Yes, that's a good thing. A profession of faith is a great start. But a dedication to the relationship. Why is that so important? John made it clear all throughout 1 John, when we truly have a relationship with Christ, He will live in us through the Holy Spirit. When we truly have a relationship with Christ, we will love others. When we truly have a relationship with Christ... We can live our life according to the Word of God. When we truly have a relationship with Christ, we can, as 1 John 5 and 4 says, we can have victory and be overcomers. When we truly have a relationship with Christ, we have a promise of salvation and eternal life. And the one thing that's common in all of those things is a true relationship with Christ. If you're here today, maybe you have never even made a start to live for Christ. Maybe you haven't even made that profession of faith. that You know what? I do believe. I, I do believe that, that Jesus died and rose from the dead for me. Maybe you're just realizing that for the first time, and you know what? That's a great start. Maybe you you've been saved for many many years, but in that time, things have crept in that are destroying that relationship that you once had. Maybe someone that's listening to this today maybe you maybe you have an addiction. Something that is just completely out of your control, that you've tried and you've tried and you've you've tried to change and and you just can't do it. On your own, you might not ever be able to. I can assure you with the Spirit of God in your life, and remember we said earlier that the amount of victory we have is tied to the amount of faith that we have in the victorious life of Christ. I would say if that's the case, ask God to forgive you. God, you know what I've done. I don't want to live that way anymore. I want you to not just forgive me, but I want to change the direction I'm headed. I'm I'm going this way, and I know it's not the right way. I want to go this way. And repentance is a change of direction. And I don't think repentance is this kind of change of direction. We're headed this way, so we just head this way a little bit. No, I think repentance, when it talks about that's a change of direction, it's we're headed this way, and we turn around and go the other way. Not just a little veer off by about three degrees. We change direction. God, I don't want to live like this anymore. Regardless of where you are, whether you've never made a start or whether you've, you've made a start living for Christ and things have crept in, I ask you today, before you leave this place, before you walk out these doors to face another day in this world that has influence that will try to destroy you, before you do that, Would you find a place to reach out to God? Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to fill you with His Spirit. It is a promise to you. It is a promise. It's a gift that's already paid for. And He has promised that He will come into your life and with His Spirit in you, you will receive power to overcome the things of this world that seek to destroy you. So I ask you again, please, before you leave here today, talk with God. Make sure by the the things that we have read today and studied over the last few weeks, that you really have the Spirit of God in your life. And if you don't, this altar is open right now. It's open during the worship service. It's open during the preaching. It will be open as long as you need. And you don't even have to come down here. You can do it right where you are. The important thing is that you establish that relationship with God. That's the most important thing that you could do today. The most important thing that you could ever do in your life. God bless you.